Kia ora, I'm Katie Harris. It's January 24 and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. High inflation, job insecurity and interest rates through the roof have been plaguing New Zealanders over the last few years. And while it looks like we may be turning a post-COVID corner, new threats are on the horizon as global conflicts continue and questions remain over the new government's plan to fix our economy. From house prices and rental costs to migration woes, this year is shaping up to be a big one for our economy. So, today on the front page we discuss all that and more with Kiwi Bank Senior Economist Mary Jo Vergara and Infometrics Chief Forecaster Gareth Kernan. No matter how you slice it, last year Kiwis were hit super hard by the cost of living crisis. And this year inflation is expected to come down. When can we actually expect to see some changes, like at the pump or at the supermarket? Will we actually be able to feel things getting cheaper? Look, I think it's a case really of prices settling at a new higher level rather than necessarily seeing price falls. I mean, look, we're seeing food prices moderating, for example, not seeing the same increases that we had previously. Some falls coming through, but generally things are are sort of staying more expensive. Petrol prices, $2.60, $2.80 a litre is probably the new normal that we've got to expect. I think probably in terms of overall cost of living, the most relief that's going to start coming through later in 2024 is probably as we start to see interest rates coming down. There's still a bit more pain for households there as people roll off previously lower fixed rates, but there are signs that those mortgage rates have peaked. And so looking forward, there is a bit of brightness on the horizon as mortgage rates start to come back down again. It's funny because on the petrol front, I was in the South Island recently and one of the most amazing parts about my visit was how cheap the petrol was in Christchurch compared to where I am in Auckland. Yeah, you see some big variations around the country, don't you? It just depends on how much competition there is in any given town or city that you happen to be in. Uh, I'm still enjoying some of the petrol that I banked in the middle of last year with one of the petrol companies' share tank and pre-buying petrol before the tax uh, excise duty went back up. But yeah, it is, it is pretty hard out there. Look at you living in 2025 and we're out here still in 2024. Mary Jo, what do you think about when we will actually be able to notice a difference in prices as a consumer? Yeah, I think just on that cost of living crisis, we're expecting some good news on that front in the sense that we're likely to see wage inflation in aggregate actually start to outpace consumer price inflation this year. And that hasn't happened since late in 2020 when inflation was running really low. So that should come as a relief for many people. You know, wage inflation has peaked though, but it's not falling as fast as consumer price inflation. So we should see that relief come through. The crisis in the Red Sea is sparking some concerns about increased prices potentially impacting Kiwis. Mary Jo, how worried should we be about this situation? Yeah, I mean, we're taking a close look at all these shipping container indices. We've seen, obviously, the attacks on the Red Sea, and that's causing shipping rates to spike and delivery times to lengthen. Um, I think I was reading somewhere where it's taking an extra nine days at sea to avoid using the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. So it is a bit of a concern because we did see the decline in freight costs late in 2022. That was a leading driver for just general easing and global inflation. But with these costs spiking again, it does suggest that we could see you know, a further lift in imported inflation, which is something we don't need right now. It's unlikely to be as big of a spike as we saw during COVID when shipping routes were just you know, completely cancelled. But it is you know, a risk out there that we see a lift again, a renewed lift in imported inflation. Yeah. And can you give us some perspective on just how many goods will be affected by this? Like, Are we just talking a few consumer goods like running shoes 
Or is this like oil, gas, logging? Is it everything? It's basically those that are traded internationally, you know, those that come from other countries. So imported inflation, things like petrol and merchandise goods, those things will get affected if you're bringing it into New Zealand. That's an extra cost when we have shipping disruptions. It's the same for imported. That extra cost will then be pushed on and passed on to consumer prices. And that's when we start to see inflation with upward pressure. So we might not be out of the woods on the petrol front just yet. Not with how things are turning out, unfortunately, internationally. Now, over Christmas, some Kiwis were feeling the pinch and data did show that things were a little slow consumer-wise over the Christmas period. New spending data has revealed Kiwi consumers were more careful with their money in 2023. There was a tendency towards more spending on food and liquor, but less at retail and furniture stores. Figures from Wordline show the average transaction size was down 1.5% on the previous year. Gareth, this year, what are the forecasts saying about spending and consumer purchases? Yeah, I mean, households are still under pressure in terms of particularly those mortgage rate effects coming through. And we think there will be sort of conservatism around household spending decisions right throughout the course of 2024. Um, From a business perspective or from an economy-wide perspective, of course, we've got very strong uh, population growth and net migration at the moment. So what that's doing is means that for your average business, if you've got every customer that's coming in is spending 5% less, say, than they were previously, that sort of squeezes your volumes. But at the same time, you've got more people coming in through the door. So there's you know more customers actually coming in, which is helping to mitigate some of that weakness. And it does mean that while our per capita growth numbers don't look that great, our overall aggregate spending activity will probably hold up better this year than we might have expected previously. Yeah, and just before Christmas, we had the half-yearly economic and fiscal update. And while it may be obvious, I'm not an economist, uh, it did make for some grim reading. What did you guys both take away from it? Yeah, I think the key for me was that there's not a lot of room for the government to achieve its goals in terms of whether it's tax cuts, whether it's changing spending or boosting infrastructure spending, that type of thing. I think they've come into power and seen, well, there's, there's less money than they thought even beforehand. So there's quite a lot of squeeze there in terms of that government space. And I think a lot of prioritisation and tough choices that they're going to have to be made through the course of this year in terms of what they do push ahead with and what they don't uh, choose to go forward with. In terms of the forecast, it just showed something that we're already expecting, the slowdown in the economy, which doesn't you know, bode well for a fiscal outlook. You know, As Gareth was saying, households are facing a tough trio of high interest rates, high inflation and weak house price growth. There's really little appetite for them to go out and splurge. And the same for businesses. Business confidence has improved but still their activity indicators are still pointing towards a weak economic outlook. So it doesn't bode well for the fiscal outlook either. Now the coalition government have committed to providing tax relief this year. Gareth, how can the country afford this and will this impact the wider economy? Yeah, it's an interesting question because when you look at the tax cuts that they've proposed or the adjustments to the thresholds for the different tax rates, it's taking it back to roughly where it would have been in 2017-18 once you adjust for the inflation that's occurred during that period. So people talk about it being a tax cut. It's not really. It's just a bit of adjustment back to where we were. And it's certainly not even going back to that sort of 2010 tax rates that we had. So there's still a heck of a lot of wage inflation that has seen people push up into higher brackets, even if the government does make those changes. But it does raise an interesting question about your priorities as a government. Giving more money back to households or or giving a bit more money back to them is one side of the equation. But we know there's a lot of pressure on government in terms of 
infrastructure provision in terms of operating spending around areas like health, for example, where it's increasingly difficult to sort of retain our staff, our nurses and that type of thing. So, yeah, it's not a clear-cut decision about whether the government can give the money back or not. There's different priorities that different people have. I think the key for me is, okay, if they're doing those tax cuts, that's one side of the equation, but they are really looking for more efficiency or more productivity in terms of the existing programs there as well to be able to achieve some of the goals that people who would be advocating for more spending in particular areas will be looking for. You mentioned infrastructure spending there, and that's one thing that we often hear about is this need to invest for our future and invest in sometimes quite pricey projects, for example, the city rail link or new state highways. And at the same time, we're also hearing a big focus from this government is to cut spending and balance those books. Where do you guys both stand? Yeah, I think with infrastructure, we have a big shortage and it's becoming even more evident with how fast migration is rising. Um, We just have to be able to accommodate these extra people that are coming to New Zealand. And as it stands today, there is a need for better infrastructure, you know, health, education, all that housing. There is need for, you know, improvement in that area. Yeah, I think the difficulty the government has is just in terms of its borrowing capacity is part of the equation around infrastructure. And part of it is just around the delivery as well. And what we've seen over the last few years is that, yes, there's been cost increases that have impacted on projects. But equally, there's been, it seems to have been a bit of a lack of discipline around some of that as well, where projects have um, just been pushed forward without necessarily being adequately designed and planned. And therefore, that's when those cost increases start to come through later. And it turns out to be a, a $5 billion project instead of a $3 billion one. So it is about more discipline there as well. But yeah, there is a little doubt that we do need to somehow find a way to invest more in infrastructure and make sure that we're you know, not running into many of the issues that we're seeing, particularly around water at the moment, would be an example where both central and local government have some responsibility to try and improve the outcomes that we're seeing. We spoke to Herald journalist Simon Wilson last week regarding infrastructure. And one thing he mentioned, and I was hoping to get both of your opinions on this, is that New Zealand had an issue where we would have these big projects and we'd get lots of staff in from overseas on these, say, five-year contracts, but then there was nowhere for them to go after and we didn't have a continuity of projects happening. We don't have enough continuity of work, so construction companies don't know where they're going to be in two years, five years' time. So to get the skilled people we need, we have to pay a premium and then when they finish the job, they go back overseas. They can't roll on to the next one and the next one and the next one. And that means that it's more expensive for us to do it. Does that impact things economically? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, we did some work last year for um, Infrastructure NZ, which was looking at precisely that issue where there's a lack of forward planning over 25 or 30 years in terms of exactly what the pipeline might be. And it does mean that you end up paying more. There's a lack of certainty for businesses operating in that space about their resourcing requirements. They might need a thousand staff today, but when the project is ended, they don't need, you know, 50% of those staff because there's nothing for them to do. So it does create issues. And I think what we've seen is increasingly, I guess, politicisation around parts of the infrastructure equation. Roading versus rail would be a prime example where you think you could find some sort of middle ground and agreement between the parties that, yes, this is the broad plan we're going to go with. 
and then we can build and resource ourselves appropriately for that over the longer term. But at the moment, it does seem to be very much on an ad hoc basis. And this is my pet project versus your pet project that I'm not going to do. And that does really create major headaches and ultimately cost implications in the industry. I was just going to say, it would be nice to have some sort of independent body that has a concentration and infrastructure that kind of transcends the governments that come and go. That will just, you know, help to ensure that these projects are, once they're agreed upon, that they sort of are completed. Earlier this month, The Herald reported that nearly 250,000 people arrived in Aotearoa in the year to November. Mary Jo, what sort of pressure is this migration going to put on the economy? With rising migration, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. That's a lot of people that have come to New Zealand. On the supply side, it's obviously offering this greater capacity, especially in terms of the labour market, and that's helpful for inflation. On the demand side, though, we obviously have a bigger population. That's more demand for housing, for retail, which doesn't help inflation. And the jury's still out as to which side is dominating out the gate, the boost to labour supply really helped and the impact on the labour market was quite immediate, you know, given how starved businesses were of workers over that COVID period. But their appetites are now being satisfied and I think the demand side impacts of this rise in migration are starting to show, especially when we're looking at housing, rents have risen around 4% over the last year and a lot of that can be boiled down to higher um, migration adding impact on the housing market. So it's still, you know, that double-edged sword, but this demand side is starting to show. Net migration, that's the difference between the number of people coming in and going out, was at 128,000 in the year to October. The last record gain set back in March 2020 was just over 80,000. On average, we receive 15 to 20 applications per property. At least 50% of them are from people that are new to New Zealand. On the housing market side of things, Gareth, are you predicting housing and house prices may go down in the next few months or is this something that could rise? Yeah, look, we've seen in the second half of last year, there is a bit of an upward momentum coming through in the market, as Mary said, driven primarily by migration. We are expecting further house price rises this year, but we're probably down towards the sort of moderate end of the spectrum in terms of how far we expect house prices to rise. It might be a a 5% increase Um, through the course of 2024. And for us, the constraining factor, yes, you've got that very strong demand being driven by migration, but also the constraint of the fact that mortgage rates are still relatively high, certainly a lot higher than they were three years ago. And that means in terms of debt servicing ability for people who are looking to borrow, they just can't afford to actually pay a substantial more amount for housing because the debt servicing costs are that much higher. So yes, there's demand in there, both from migration, also from investors as some of those rules are changed by the government and make uh, investment more attractive. But overall, the housing market still does have that constraint. The other point I'd add around there as well is the Reserve Bank is consulting on introducing debt-to-income restrictions as well. That will, again, potentially be something of constraint on the market and just limiting how far prices can be pushed up. My final question for both of you, if you could gaze into your crystal ball slash spreadsheets, what would be your biggest economic prediction for this year that we haven't covered so far this episode? For me, it's just rate cuts. This could be a pretty big year in terms of starting this new chapter of normalising monetary policy, which has been aggressively tightened over the last two, three years. We could start to see rate cuts happen, thinking around the second half of this year. All the stars are aligning, inflation is falling, the labour market is, is loosening and economic activity is slowing down. So all that we could see rate cuts happen. 
For me, the area probably haven't touched on, it does link a little bit in with what Mary Jo said, um, one of the sort of downside risks or areas of concern we have for the economy is just around provincial areas. We've seen through 2023 a very sluggish Chinese economy and it's not expected to get any better through 2024. That is really weighing on export commodity prices at the moment. And so for those sort of provincial areas that are reliant on the agricultural sector, they were the star performers during COVID when everybody had to keep eating. So they were earning that export revenue for us, but I think it will be a tough time for them over the next 12 to 18 months if those commodity prices continue to remain soft. Mary Jo and Gareth, thank you so much for joining us. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Ethan Sills. Paddy Fox is the sound engineer. I'm Katie Harris. Subscribe to The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.